Good evening. It's good to see you. Uh, as Phil said, it is great to see you, particularly on a, a lovely uh, Sunday evening in October. Um, beautiful weather. It was beautiful yesterday, to be fair. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's good to see you. And we're continuing in our series in the, in the book of James. Uh, so if, you, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you can open them, uh, please, to James chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read from verses 1 to 13. These are verses uh, I suspect that are really quite well known. But this is what God's Word says. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we uh, once again, uh, we thank you for who you are. Father God, we thank you that you have inspired James to write these words. And so as we come to look at them now, Father, help us to be alert. Uh, help us to uh, hear, not just with our ears, but with our heart. And Father, speak through me, I pray. May they be your words, not mine, for your glory. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm really, I'm really enjoying um, preaching through James. Actually, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I hope you're enjoying uh, engaging with it. Uh, it's something that I've really enjoyed. And I, I had, it started, I don't know if I said that, it started with, 
me going away and I'd read it myself, I'd been studying it myself with no particular intention to preach it. Uh, and uh, so challenged was I that I thought, yeah, I, I have to bring this. I have to, 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 to look uh, at teaching it. And last week, if you were here, you'll have seen that James finishes that first part of his letter uh, with the three marks of real, genuine uh, religion, real religion for the Christian. So it's that, that what is that, what's the real deal? Uh, they weren't an exhaustive list, um, but they were three things, as uncomfortable as they are, that mark out our religious conviction as being genuine. And there's a, there's a counter-cultural feel uh, to, to what he's saying. We know that all the way through the letter. He's turning uh, things upside down, turning our culture around, uh, and, and saying, look, do not simply see things the way the world sees things. You've got to turn it on its head. See it the way God sees it. Uh, and you remember that I said that, that over the course of the, the rest of the letter, James will expand on these uh, three things. The three things being uh, control your tongue. Keep control of your tongue. The, the second thing being uh, do not uh, be conformed uh, to the world. Don't let them pollute you. Uh, and the third of these uh, three marks uh, in chapter 1 verse 27 was religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows. Now, if James had simply left that at chapter at the end of chapter one, if he'd simply not said anything more about it, we would simply look at that, I, I think, and say, "Yep, got that. We got it. Be nice to orphans. Be nice to widows. You know, vulnerable groups. Be nice to them. I've I've got it. No problem. That's fine. It's good." But you see, then James, what he does, and that's one of the things I love about James, is he takes a very, very practical illustration, uh, one that is timeless, absolutely timeless, and he uses it to show us, I hope, that it's not just looking out for the poor and marginalized. It's more than that. It's more than just being nice. We like to be nice. My mother used to say, what was it she used to say? It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. But as James uh, makes his point here, one of the things that he does from chapter 1 into chapter 2 is he moves from religion, talking about religion, to talking in chapter 2 uh, about faith. And what he's doing is he's, he's taking us from that external mention of religion and down into faith, the internal and really looking and going after our hearts. And, and, and once again, the implication of his illustration and his call uh, to avoid favoritism are, are counter-cultural, right? Our world looks at relationships. We look at relationships on a transactional basis. That's what we do, right? We, what will we get out of it? What will this person bring me? What will they give me? What will they bring to our lives? And James will show us that that's not how God wants us to look at others, particularly those who are most 
vulnerable. And so I've got four headings tonight for you, four. Firstly, no favoritism, no favoritism. Secondly, the royal law, the royal law. Thirdly, law breakers. Uh, and then finally, mercy triumphs, mercy triumphs. No favoritism. I wonder if, does it come as a surprise a little bit to read what James writes here to the young church? We are accustomed, I think, to viewing the early church as being without problem and difficulty. Now, we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts in the morning, we're going to see that the early church had lots of things that were really good, and they also had lots of really significant challenges. But we are, I think, accustomed to thinking that the, that the early church was this, didn't really have any problem or difficulty. But clearly, the reason that James is writing about this is because in the churches of his time, the rich are being welcomed and the poor are not. That's presumably why he's writing it. It's not a theoretical thing. He has experienced that. He has seen it in the churches uh, that he, in the gatherings that he has been uh, therefore, so he says, and that's why he says, look, you, he will have seen that somebody has come in who's rich, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and that they're, they're treated differently to the guy who comes in uh, with shabby clothes. And it is, in truth, something that has affected the church right down through the ages. I, I went, that's about uh, two years ago or so, I, we went we were back at home in Northern Ireland, and um, they have uh, what's called the Ulster Folk Park in Northern Ireland, just outside Belfast, and it, and it recreates the, the Belfast of the 1800s. Um, and uh, there's actually a number of them across Northern Ireland and so on, and, and historical things about the, uh, the potato famine and, and so on and so forth. But one of the things that they have in the Folk Park is a church a replica church from the 18, from circa 1800s. And it's really interesting because when you walk through it, there are family pews, boxes. Actually, it's like a, a little box with a family pew. And they have a little, they have a little gold plaque on it that says, that, that kind of tells you whose family that pew was for. And you weren't allowed to sit in that. Only the family would sit in that, in that particular pew. That was, they, they, they had paid for it and they would sit there. And round the corner, because churches then were, were often in the shape of a, in the shape, loosely at least, in the shape of a cross. And so, in, in round the edges and tucked then out of sight were the bits, were the free seats, the, the, the cheap seats. So they were, so, so the rich people didn't even have to look at the, people, the poor people. They were hidden around the corner. Now, the, the, I mean, we, 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 I think when we hear that, and maybe when we read it from James, we think, well, nothing like that would happen in a modern church. That's true. I mean, you know, not, certainly nobody pays for the front seats. That's for, that's for sure. <laughs> Somebody's, nobody's paid for them. But it's not just money that makes us treat people differently. And the truth gets a little bit more uncomfortable. 
Because it could simply be that, 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 that we like people who are like us. Who are easy to speak to. Easy to engage with. We can have a laugh. Could be on the basis of their intellect. We favor them. It could be that the lifestyles of some people make us uncomfortable. Their alcohol dependency, their drug dependency, their depression, their demeanor, their sexual orientation, their sexual promiscuity. See, it's, it's, it's so easy, so easy for us to apply an unwritten rule. We'd never say it out loud. We, we wouldn't say this out loud. But that people coming to Seagate should behave and then belong and then believe. But the problem is, you see, that's not the gospel. You belong and believe. And then you behave. But it's easy, very easy, to flip that around. And let me tell you, if it could happen in the early church, it can absolutely happen in Seagate. And in the church back then, it's even, even stranger, he drills down even further because he says, listen, it appears that they favored the rich even though they were exploiting them. So the rich people would come in but, and they would be fawned over, but those same rich people were exploiting them. How strange. We would never do that. Except I've been in churches. I've been in churches. I was in church in Dundee. It was an interesting thing because we had a Premier League, Scottish Premier League footballer came. And he came regularly. He was, he was perfectly lovely, actually. He was a, he was a wonderful guy. Um, but the reaction, watching the reaction of people to having Juan Sarah, who'd scored a hat-trick for Dundee, coming to the church, it's really interesting. And how excited people were to have, and how excited we might get if someone famous came in. But actually, celebrities and sportsmen and women and, and often, uh, they often actually exploit their, their fans to become rich. There are often, in fact, people who are leading the culture, potentially against Christianity. I'm not saying that um, the footballer in Dundee was doing that. He, he, he wasn't. But actually, we, we do, we are keen to get the, the, the plum person. If, if, if we could just convert that person. Even though actually they may be explo- exploiting us, exploiting others. And yet, if a, if, if a drunk and smelly man comes in, there's the step back. The moving away from them and not towards them. Admission, but not acceptance. 
We must not be a church like that. In fact, as we reach the brokenhearted, the poor, the vulnerable, the maligned in our town, church will, it will become more uncomfortable. It must. Sam Albury is a, a pastor and a, and a Christian writer. And he says this, favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another soul on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. I find that really challenging. Let me read it again. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another person's soul on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. And let me tell you that, that I, you know, acceptance, this is not just a call to be nice to people who might come in. This is about a, a call, actually, not to, not to just say, well, I've spoken to, you know, somebody from the job club on a Sunday morning so I can go out and pat myself on the back. Although, by all means, we should do that. This is actually about treating them as friends, inviting them to our home, into our social circle, doing life with them, messy, difficult life. Never promised it would be easy. Now, I suspect, of course, all that I have said so so far, uh, most people would say, well, it's uncomfortable what we would say, amen. Um, and as a matter of good practice, we, should, we shouldn't have favorites, and that is very good moral teaching. So far, that's excellent moral teaching. And, but again, one of the things I, I, I love uh, about James is he doesn't just stop with the moral actions. He's always, he's kind of relentlessly going after our hearts. He's kind of pursuing our hearts. A heart transformation and a deepening of faith that, that then leads to changed actions. Uh, and written across these verses are in fact the very heartbeat of God himself. The call from James for the real deal Christian to have hearts that beat as God's heart beats, to see people as God sees them and to value what God values. And he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Those words, by the way, are taken from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Uh, and they are the verses that Jesus quoted most often in the Gospels throughout his ministry. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he, of course, exemplified that, as we'll see in a minute. But James calls it the royal law because it captures the whole legal framework of the kingdom of God. It's like, it's like the motto, if you like. And, and back in Exodus, when, um, when, when Moses asked, Remember when Moses asked to see the glory of God and, and Moses said, will you show me your glory? And, and, and God said, well, I will. I'll reveal to you my name, my, my character. 
This is what he said. But then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him in Exodus 34 and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The character of God is compassion and grace and steadfast, fierce love. Patience, faithful to all. Moses would later write in his sermon in Deuteronomy these words from God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens. Why does he say you are to love those who are aliens? For you yourself were aliens in Egypt. I've been studying uh, at the moment uh, myself the book of Micah. Maybe in six or eight months' time I'll be preaching Micah as these things go. But for the time being, I'm studying it, just studying it myself. And it's a book where Micah again and again calls to the people, treat others with justice and mercy. Treat them with justice and mercy. That's what God wants from his people. He doesn't want your sacrifices. That's what God says. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your religion. I want the principles of love and justice and compassion and mercy. That's the royal law. And then, of course, we come through Moses and Deuteronomy and Micah, and then we come to Christ himself, the perfect representation of God on earth. And when challenged by the Pharisees about what was the greatest commandment, you know these words Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like, love your neighbor as yourself. Two commandments that sum up the whole law because they speak of our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with everyone else. And at the very opening of his ministry on earth, he stood up in the temple, Luke tells us, and he read these words from Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've been so challenged, so challenged recently, over actually over the last year or two, that we can have all the theology. And I, I'm not saying theology is not important, it's incredibly important. Incredibly important. So often we have all the theology up in our heads and it doesn't get their hearts. And we 
And we're not preaching good news to the poor and the release of the oppressed. The sad reality is, and again, I'm off text a little bit here, but the sad reality is that there are churches that are all about that. But very often their theology is away. Have to grasp that the very heartbeat of God is for those who are poor and maligned in society. That is the royal law. It's the anthem of God's kingdom. And we who are members of that kingdom, there's no favoritism, no partiality allowed in it. I think I said last week that the most common accusation of Jesus Christ, and we are called to be like Jesus, the most common thing they said of they accused Jesus of was being a friend of sinners. Jesus, you're a friend of sinners. You're a friend of sinners. Jesus said, yes, I am, because I came for the sick. It's the sick that need a doctor. If Jesus Christ was the friend of sinners. We must be the friend of sinners too. James has told us now we must not show favoritism. He's shown us that God has a heart for the broken and the poor. And now in these last verses, he gives us a dose of self-awareness as he helps us to see who we really are, that we are lawbreakers. Verse 9, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. But if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Now, it's interesting. When I read that the first time, my, this week when I was beginning to study it, and I really looked at it, my initial heart reaction was, the, why is James put murder and adultery there? Why is murder and adultery? They're the big sins. I mean, if, if, if we do that, oh, we really are lawbreakers then. That was, the, that was my heart. And then it hit me with really quite some force. But James' point is that breaking this royal law, showing favoritism, makes me every bit as bad in the eyes of the law as a murderer and an adulterer. We don't naturally see those things the same. But says James, the law, it's like a sheet of glass. Any break in it, any worm renders the whole thing broken. We know that's true. But what part does this truth play in relation to favoritism? Well, I started this evening, I started by saying that we often like to show favor to people who are like us. Who, who we see as being the same as us. Who have a characteristic or a position that we aspire to. 
But that's on the basis that we like to think of ourselves, you see, as being pretty well sorted. We're pretty good. We're likable. We're nice. But the spiritual reality is that we are pitiful. Before God, we are wretched. We are lost. We are in desperate, we were in desperate need of salvation and rescue. Just like the the people of the Old Testament who were slaves when they were rescued, we were slaves. It's who we were. And just like the people of the Old Testament who forgot all about their slave status when, when God did what he did for them. We forget it. David in the Psalms says, we we were conceived in sin. Our sins and our transgressions, says David, are ever before us. Paul in Romans 3 would write, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 7, Paul would write and say, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? In Ephesians, Paul would tell us that we were dead in our transgressions and that we were objects of wrath. That is who we were. That is who God showed favor to. Did you see how significant that is? That that we cannot show favoritism. We can't snub the, the smelly, uncomfortable person in the corner and the vulnerable and the broken, because that's who we were before God. If God had had applied that criteria to us, none of us would be saved. And God in Jesus Christ who was purity itself, who had riches and glory and power and majesty, showed outrageous grace and gave it all up for us. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. There was once a man who owed his boss an amount of money he could, he could never ever pay back. He could never pay it back, not in 10 lifetimes. He, he threw himself on the mercy of his boss and to his surprise the debt was canceled. And he went out forgiven, rescued from disaster and a lifetime in prison. And what did he do next? He went and grabbed his friend and throttled him for a week's wages. How dare you not pay me? You know what happened in the end, don't you? When the boss who represents God heard, he threw this wicked servant into jail. See, when we truly understand the mercy that we have received, 
We will want to pass that on. When we understand what we look like to God, we don't show favoritism anymore. And listen, the failure of that is fearful. Verse 12 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. There's a common thought that Christians won't be judged. But we will be judged. The Bible's quite clear about that. Christians will be judged. And all our works will be refined to reveal gold and silver or hay and straw. Now we may get into heaven through the grace of Christ. We may get into heaven, but we will stand in judgment. We will give an account of what we did. And a heart that shows favoritism, that shies away from showing true mercy and compassion to the least of people in the church, to the hardest and most awkward people, shows a heart that doesn't understand the mercy they have been given. But as James closes wonderfully in the end, in these verses, he closes with that wonderful four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You could have that as the gospel, couldn't you? If you needed to condense the gospel to four words. That will be what happens for the Christian when they're judged. We'll never be more aware in that moment of what should happen to us. What the judgment ought to be. But because of Jesus Christ, mercy will triumph over judgment. I quoted a moment ago from Ephesians 2 as Paul revealed what we are all like. And then with two little words, but in God, everything was transformed. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When we see who we really are, and actually, one of the things that runs through James is self-awareness. Self-awareness. It's countercultural and it's self-awareness. 
understand who you are. When we see and understand what God has done for us, we will put away all favoritism. We will see that every person, every person, rich and poor, truly is a trophy of grace. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we're so thankful for what you've done for us. Father, would you put it ever before us what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you remind us because we are creatures that do not remember well. Would you remind us who we are? what we were. Father, we're so grateful that, that uh, we have the, the physical reminder of communion, the wine and the bread. But Father, we so easily forget in the, in the details of life. Father, would you remember, help us to remember who we are. And would, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see other people as you see them? And help us to show something of your favor to them. For your glory. Amen.